Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Pod. It is Saturday, April 3rd. And uh, it's a good day, Simon, because the golf courses are open today. And uh, you bet I'm playing 18 holes today. What's going on today for you, man? I'm going, I'm doing well. I'm going to go for a nice 20-minute walk outside. So that's the longest I've gone with after my knee injury. So building that back up. But uh, I think I'll be good to go for some uh, biking in the next three, four weeks. So pretty excited. But uh, golf in Ottawa is probably a no-go for another couple of weeks. You you got a couple more weeks, buddy. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's... uh, Let's discuss some news other than uh, Ontario's back in lockdown. I, I don't know about the rest of the, the provinces, but Ontario's back in lockdown. Which is, uh, never mind. Uh, let's move on to business news. <laughs> I don't want to dwell on it. Uh, what do you got for us, Simon? Yeah, so there's. Uh, we'll do quite a bit of news uh, on uh, at the beginning of this episode. So the first one was uh, some recent Dollarama news. So they came out with their most uh, recent fiscal year results. And as part of that, they mentioned that they'll open more than 600 new stores across Canada by 2031. That will bring its total store count to uh, 2,000 stores. So that is a lot of stores for uh, Dollarama across Canada, but their CEO seems to be uh, adamant that there is uh, enough demand for that. So we'll see how it uh, works out. But um, for the past year, they they seem to have done a pretty good job uh, considering the pandemic. Um, with them being, I think, an essential uh, business, if I remember correctly, um, it was to be expected that it would be a good year but um, just a quick quick overview they had a six percent increase in sales which is uh, very good considering the situation Um, they also had an increase in uh, free cash flow year over year i don't have the exact percentage because i just had a quick glance at it but it seems like they're um, they're doing very well in terms of uh, pandemic and their business going forward 600 stores that's a lot Uh, and is it just canada yeah, yeah, it's just Canada. I don't think they have a presence uh, internationally or in the States. There's a lot of competition south of the border yeah. in dollar stores. So I, I can see why they just want to pretty much have the monopoly up here. Yeah, and it sounds like they do. I mean, they, they're, I, I, at least in Ottawa, they're kind of everywhere already. Um, and I don't see much competition aside from the independent one here and there. Um, and I think I've seen a few Dollar Trees, but that's about it. Yeah, and this business, we've talked about it before on this podcast. It's one that kind of defied the street narrative that it had no pricing power because they can actually tick up, like it's like 50 cent increments on their products, right? They can tick them up and they've had pretty much no pushback on you know some of these items being five bucks or more now, um, especially because they're still cheap for what you're getting. And uh, they can tick up like 50 cents on some of these products and margins go bananas. So um, it's actually a good business, man. Yeah. Yeah, no, it sounds like it. I mean, something to look into if you like uh, the kind of steady grower. Um, I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. What do you got next for us? So the next piece of news is one that just came out yesterday. Um, so the Air Canada deal with Air Transat um, ended up falling through. The reasons cited by the companies were the um, 
European regulatory approval, which was denied, even though uh, Air Canada tried to put some uh, contingencies to uh, satisfy regulators over there. I'm not exactly sure to its extent why they needed European regulators. I would assume it's because they're using their airports. Um, they must also have a pretty decent uh, European traveling base. Um, so I would assume that's the reason behind it. But uh, it was obviously required for the merger to go through. And after it was announced, the uh, Canadian Transport Minister, Omar al Gabra, and I, pro I am probably butchering his name right there, um, he tweeted that the federal government is looking at financial support options for uh, for Canadian airlines, including Air Transat. So I guess there's uh, to be continued when it comes to that. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see an announcement uh, regarding some financial support from the feds in the next uh, weeks or months uh, coming ahead. I'm. This is not, of all the big blockbuster deals these days this is not one i had pegged for to not go through if i'm being dead honest and i'm no expert in the airline industry but this is not one i had pegged as probably won't go through um and i don't think the street did either because it traded pretty much at the proposed price for a long time anyways so like there wasn't much arbitrage on the price there so um i guess myself and the market would be surprised to see this result and uh yeah that's i guess that's too bad huh yeah yeah it sounded like uh, that's something that should uh, really would have benefited air transat because of the whole pandemic i think they're of all airlines they're really struggling because they tended to have um flights to vacation destination and obviously that's been hammered by the pandemic so we'll see their ceo sounded uh, fairly optimistic that things would be okay for them uh but um yeah the federal government did say that uh, they want to protect jobs so um yeah i i have a feeling we'll see something coming up an announcement from them in uh, in the near future moving on before brookfield had a proposal to take out and buy out 100% of the BPY publicly listed units. That's their real estate investment trust business. Uh, they've reached an agreement. So they're acquiring it at 1817 per BPY unit, which represented a 26% premium um, when the deal was first announced. Uh, you know, this is Brookfield doing Brookfield, doing things that are contrary to what is you know, appreciated in the market and uh, real estate office and uh, retail in particular, what's in their portfolio has been beaten up a lot, like for these public listings uh, on the real estate investment trust side. But if you're Brookfield, they don't own the crappy subpar real estate. They own the best real estate in the world with big, central city anchor important buildings uh on the office side and you know the the premium mall properties across the world so they own quality properties and uh brookfield believes that they're going to be valuable in the future and they see good value in taking those those uh those units off and, and adding it to the Brookfield asset management business. So I, you know, as a, as a BAM shareholder, this is what you sign up for, 
right? Is you sign up for Bruce Flat doing things that the market doesn't like. And that's why the stock has done so well over his tenure, uh, his very long tenure now. Um, and he's not afraid to, to do, go against the grain and, and do deals like this. And that's what you sign up for. And that's why he has my capital. And, uh, you know, I'm going to c- continue to own Brookfield and be very happy about it. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's definitely a Brookfield doing Brookfield things, and um, so it's they're they're being contrarians when it comes to that, but they they sound like they see a lot of value in BPY, so that's why they're um, they're going ahead with this. Um, and they've had some interesting deals in the past year. One of them is they, um, I believe, they got approval to purchase uh, J.C. Penney assets along with Simon Property Group. So, with Simon, yeah, exactly. So I think that's uh, Simon Property Group is also an interesting one if uh, anyone's interested in that space so they own high quality malls and uh, they seem to have a similar kind of operating apparatus as uh, Brook BPY does um, obviously BPY also has some office space and some uh, apartment buildings uh, but it's something uh, to keep definitely interesting it's more of a contrarian play right now with everything going on but I know they're also uh, both of them whether it's BPY but also Simon Property Group as you can see they can be really creative with uh, their financial resources and um, I think they're yeah it's I think the future will probably look uh, look pretty bright for them when things do return to normal I think the biggest wild card is when exactly that will happen yeah especially for you know, back to an office setting, but obviously they're keen and I tend to agree with them that eventually the office space is, has proven to be very valuable over time. Okay, let's transition. I'm going to discuss Topicus.com. Topicus.com listed very recently on the TSX Venture. Um, and why they listed on the venture, I'm not actually sure. It's also like a very Constellation move. Just like Mark Leonard refuses to list Constellation software on other uh, exchanges other than the TSX because he wants the price to stay, to stay low, essentially. So Topicus listed on the TSX venture. Now, if you were a Constellation shareholder, this is a spinoff and you were actually given a few shares uh, depending on you know how many shares of Constellation you have. But uh, there's a couple key points, and there's a great report done by this anonymous guy who has a blog called The Tenth Man, and he writes a lot about Constellation software, and he did a big deep dive into Topicus on March 3rd. So uh, if you Google The Tenth Man Topicus or The Tenth Man Constellation, you'll find some of his lengthy lengthy reports and he's this guy i swear he knows the business better than anyone i know um so good job to him but there's some key takeaways to topicus because if you have these shares in your brokerage since you own constellation software you might be wondering what is this business so topicus you know in 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 the grand scheme of things it's a very small constellation but like European version. That's like the no jargon version of what it actually is. So it is like a 2010 vintage constellation. Uh, The 10th man says they've reset the clock on M&A and it should be much easier for Topicus to scale acquisitions. 
um, than CSU today. Now, there's a couple other things. Constellation has changed their direction to larger acquisitions with lower hurdle rates and cutting the special dividends, saying no more special dividend. We can achieve much better returns for shareholders by investing it in acquisitions. And so Topicus is going to bypass that learning lesson and not be doing any special distributions via a dividend. Um, And the other thing is Topicus.com, which is a Dutch business, uh, the CEO of Topicus.com will now be the CEO of Topicus, the, the listing here that has Topicus.com, the business, and then now this acquisition wing. They've achieved organic growth year over year of over 10%. And when you think of organic growth at Constellation, it's like less than 2%. You know, the whole business is driven by acquisitions. So this is interesting, right? Because it's a 2010 vintage in size and there's a lot more organic growth and they've kind of learned some things and the same guys that run constellation are the same guys running topicus mark leonard at the helm and this is you know can ease your mind if if this position sitting at your in your uh, brokerage account right now is that this is basically constellation mini European size, but there's a lot of upside to it with a lot of organic growth and some learnings along the way from the guys who run Constellation. So that is Topkiss.com. Uh, it's been a hell of an IPO already. Uh, I think it IPO'd at 65 bucks and it's over 80 bucks today. So, I mean, lots to like here. Honestly, lots to like here. More for me to dig in. I haven't added to it yet, but I'm really, really thinking about it these days. Any comments there, Simon? No, I'll defer to you when it comes to a Constellation and Topicus. Uh, it looks interesting. I mean, also goes to show that uh, there's a wide variety of listing on the TSX Venture. And I did uh, get a few tweets about it, like someone thinking about investing in a TSX Venture company and kind of putting the brakes after they heard uh, one of our recent episodes. I would say whatever the company is, um, especially on TSX Venture, you'll want to do some extra due diligence on it because uh, typically the regulatory filings are not as stringent as the TSX. Um, so I'm not saying don't invest in the, the TSX Venture. Just make sure you you turn uh, all the rocks that need to be turned before uh, you start putting some money in there. That's a good point. The TSX Venture, unfortunately, is a a field of landmines like honestly there's no other way to put it there's so many pump and dumps and crap companies and super speculative junior mining exploration businesses on there um but topicus is not anything like that so you can sleep just fine at night knowing that that tsx venture sits in your portfolio um simon what's going on with uh Okay, goes. This is it, this is nuts, man. Yeah, that is uh, some pretty uh, big news, and uh, I'm not exactly sure if we're pronouncing it correctly. Archegos, Archegos, Archegos. Uh, regardless, I'm sure you've heard heard, heard the news of the uh, family office, or kind of that worked like a hedge fund that incurred some heavy losses. Uh, the numbers I've seen is anywhere between twenty and thirty billion in losses. Um, 
to just give you an idea of what happens. So a family office typically has less requirements than uh, normal hedge funds. They're supposed to be managing capital for either single families or multiple families and are typically for very high network individuals. So fortunately, Braden and I cannot use those kind of services. Um, uh, speak for yourself, buddy. <laughs> yeah, it depends what the, the threshold of ex- super high network individual is Um, so what happened what triggered all of this is there was a margin call uh, which means that the hedge fund got wiped out Um, what really started what's really kind of interesting what happened here is the um, the funds um, I guess CEO uh, Bill Huang is uh, someone who's had a kind of shady past and some uh, pretty hefty fines with uh, some insider trading and other things. Um, So there was already some question marks around him. And uh, what is believed to have caused uh, the whole sell-off was uh, Viacom CBS, which Archegos had significant exposure through leverage or derivatives. So they actually were heavily levered for their position. Um, I'm not sure exactly to what ratio, but uh, was I believe higher than 10 to 1. I've heard uh, even uh, to the extent of 20 to 1, uh, but there's still a lot of details coming out, so um, I'm sure we'll know more in the next uh, months or year as there uh, is this SEC actually announced that they are launching an investigation into this. Um, so because it was a family office, uh, Bill Wang avoided a lot of disclosure with the SEC. Uh, since the shares being held were actually held through the derivatives, so they weren't necessarily being shown as the direct owners of the shares, even though he held a higher than 5% stake, which would normally cause uh, disclosure for these type of funds. Um, Another thing that I've seen is apparently he used the same type of collateral for um, for the leverage for several banks so that's why there's banks that actually did not see any losses and some that were severely hit by this so some uh, goldman sachs and Deutsche bank uh, were able to avoid material losses because they got ahead of it and sold their their exposure um, to that pretty early on but then crisis suisse and a few other banks actually did not, so they had some significant losses. Uh, Crédit Suisse, I think it's anywhere between three and five billion, uh, depending on some of uh, what I've seen. But again, we'll probably know a bit more in the upcoming months and years. Um, like I mentioned, the SEC has announced an investigation, so I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg of what really happened. But what is really making the markets um, nervous about all of this is, um, according to a piece in The Economist in 2018, back then there was $4 trillion managed by these family offices. Um, so I can probably assume that it's closer to five or even higher right now with uh, the, the growth we've seen in the past three years. But if that kind of behavior is actually happening, like pretty widespread in these family offices, um, it could cause some serious problem and serious ripple effects in the the financial markets. But it also shows that these so-called professional investors, these professional banks are making essentially the same kind of mistakes that they made back in the financial crisis. And they're using way too much uh, leverage. In some cases, they probably don't even know from what I've seen what they're really getting into because if uh, Bill Wang was using the 
collateral with several different banks, the same collateral for his assets, uh, kind of makes you wonder if the banks are actually like doing their due diligence. Um, so, you know, even small investors like us, I think it's a good um, it's a good reminder of the dangers of using leverage and how quickly things can go sideways. It can go really well, but uh, if you get a pullback and then you get a margin call, depending on how much you're levered, you can essentially be wiped out. So Bill Wang went to, let's just take the $20 billion figure on the low end, um, to being completely wiped out in a matter of a, a day, essentially. So that's, that's pretty much the, the lowdown on that. I'm going to quote the the boys, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. There's three ways to go broke. Liquor, ladies, and leverage. And uh, you know, that third piece, leverage, is almost every disaster begins with leverage. And this brings us to, you know, a good talking point is... You know, there's very famous investors basically saying you don't really need to run leverage in your investment portfolio for the the regular average self-directed investor. I mean, if you are doing it with lots of margin of safety and you have, you know, you can cover margin calls and stuff like that, then sure, whatever, you may, may want to take on more risk and do whatever you want to do. But Warren Buffett has exclusively answered this question many times on CNBC because he always asks, should the regular investor use leverage? And he always says the same thing, that the regular investor has enough time horizon um, and will make will accrue enough money with a good savings rate that you don't need to use leverage to increase your position size in, in, your, in your portfolio in general. So... Do you ever use margin or leverage ever in equity positions? Uh, have you? No, I've never used it. I mean, I may may at some point if I want to try shorting or options or things like that, but I'd be very conservative on that approach. But so far, I've kind of stayed away from that, and it's worked well for me. Um, I guess the only leverage I've kind of used is for a mortgage, right? Um, with the yeah, loans, yeah, on which, real estate, exactly, which is you know pretty common. Uh, but we've all, I've always been a big believer in putting that twenty percent down because it gives you that buffer, and uh, it actually reminds me of a recent discussion that uh, the former CEO of this. CHMC um, mentioned, and he sees the biggest risk in the housing market in Canada as being uh, people putting only 5% down, and that combined with uh, people being overextended uh, could be a recipe for disaster. And what he's really referring to is people are being overlevered. So that's really the big thing. And uh, he was saying that in his mind, they should put that down payment at 10%. Uh, but it's another example of what potentially over leverage can do because that was one of the things that happened during the housing bubble in the US and the crash is that people were being over leveraged having several properties with little to no down payment. Yeah, it's the source of pretty much all financial ruin is leverage. Like honestly, in every single situation. Uh, so I've never used leverage to go long in a position. I've never used leverage in other financial instruments like some of these complex things like derivatives. Uh, and you really just don't need to. That's just my opinion. You really just do not need to use leverage on a stock portfolio that you're managing like whatsoever. 
if you need more money to invest, you got to look at your savings rate. And in the generation phase, like in the accumulation phase of generating wealth, your savings rate is going to matter more than your investment decisions, I think. Uh, maybe later when your co- portfolio has been compounding for 20 years, those decisions will will have mattered more than your savings rate in 20 years. But right now, or in the accumulation phase, your savings rate is pretty much everything. You have more money to invest. And then you just won't need leverage because, you, like you said, with your mortgage, you're not getting margin called. There's no... 50% drawdowns on your house. Well, not that you would, you know, see in a few trading days anyways. Uh, so yeah, it's something to bring up is, uh, you know, liquor ladies and leverage. It's the only way to go broke. Yeah. Who knows about the other two for, for Bill Huang, but uh, we know that the last one definitely was the deciding factor there. But yeah, something to keep in mind. I know the allure of quick gains is a very enticing, but just just remind yourself that it can go both ways. And if it goes the other way, it won't be pretty. Yes, sir. Okay, uh, we're going to transition. We had an awesome conversation with Andrew Sather at E-Investing for Beginners. Sigmund and I had a chance to sit down with him last week and just uh, pick his brain on some things he's been thinking about. So um, happy to bring you that conversation. And here it is. We have a special guest on for this segment of the show today, Andrew Sather from E-Investing for Beginners and the Investing for Beginners podcast. He is a greater all-around guy, very smart guy. Andrew, welcome to the show. It's always good to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me on again. So we were talking a little bit before recording, and we're going to get to uh, some nerdy accounting jargon later, but... Can we please dunk on the ARK Invest analyst coming out with this insane price target with the insurance business for Tesla? Um, What was your reaction to this? And if you read the report, I mean, any CFA would just was just like, how is this a real thing? You know, I I know I didn't read the report, so this is coming off secondhand. Basically. My source on this is a Instagram meme I saw, which it, that's it was, it was, legit though. <laughs> everyone knows that's where you, everyone should get their facts from. <laughs> it was a pretty, it was a pretty meme, uh, and it wasn't like trying to poke fun. And I'm not trying to say anybody's, you know, doing things wrong. You know, we all have our different opinions of how things should be valued, but it, it showed like how much in revenues and how much in, in gross profit. And so I think Tesla as a whole was supposed to have more revenues than Walmart has now, but then also have like 40% gross profit, which sounds like a tech company. doesn't sound like a, a, a car company to me. Yeah. I, I mean, let's not forget this is a car company and the ARC price target is $3,000 per share in 2025. Now, I have my opinions about price targets like that just in general, but um, this is – I guess this is a, a bit of a problem with incentives and analysts coming out with these reports and firms like ARC that are getting so many flows into their ETFs. Like their flows are incredible. Um, and don't get me wrong. Kathy Wood, very smart uh 
you know, what she believes in and, and standing by it. I, I really back that. But the reason they got a name for themselves and the reason their fund did so well was that, you know, pre-split $2,000 price target for ARC, which everyone made fun of, uh, sorry, from ARC for Tesla. And everyone made fun of it. And um, so maybe the incentives could be, you know, not correctly aligned when these price targets are hit and then, you know, they look great. But, I mean, no one would even know about ARC if they didn't make this call. So you got to wonder, that, too. Not only that, it's their biggest holding. So exactly. uh, it's obviously in their interest to pump up the stock as much as they can be as optimistic as they can. I mean, it, 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 like the GameStop guy, he, he went on and he testified and he said, I like the stock, right? Um, I, I almost would prefer to see that rather than to see numbers which just look really unrealistic. Totally. Uh, yeah, that guy's awesome, by the way. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> that guy is awesome. He says, okay. I'm not a cat. I'm not a cat. Okay. Um, yeah, you bring up a good point. Our Honestly, it looks like it's an absolute liquidity crisis with, you know, all these flows going into these highly illiquid names, uh, very small cap. So anyways, we'll see how it all pans out. Uh, they've been right on a lot of stuff so far. So who am I to really say? The, Andrew, so it's not even the, the not to like be the dead horse. It's not just the projections about the auto business. I know there's projections about the insurance business, too. But if, if you start to dig into how finance companies grow, particularly like banks or insurance companies, as the as the law is now, you have to put a certain amount of capital into reserves in order to grow your revenue base. And so a lot of these projections don't seem to have that into account. And it's just very, very rosy, very it's it's hard to see how how you can build an insurance company from scratch uh, without having to use a lot of capital, which will stifle growth from other segments. Uh, yeah, Andrew, I had a question for you. So what do you think, like, for the future of Tesla, just out of curiosity, like with more um, car manufacturers getting into the business of electric vehicles, I'm of the opinion that, you know, it may they may have more competition than they think in the years to come, and the business may not go as well as, you know, a lot of people think. So what are your thoughts on that? So I, I have some boots on the ground research, uh, you know, being somebody who grew up in California, I go back and visit every once in a while. And I'll tell you in California, Tesla is just out of control. Like it's, it's everywhere you look and turn, um, up and down the five and the four hundred five freeway. It, it's, it's, it's truly incredible. And just in a few short years, how it's gone from like, Oh, Hey, there's a Tesla to like, Oh my God, there's like three Teslas next to me, you know, but you know, having flown from there and where I live now on the East Coast um, in Raleigh, North Carolina, it, it hasn't quite hit that saturation point yet. And when you, if you look at some of the reports coming out of Europe, they're actually, so in China, they had some early momentum and it kind of faded off. In Europe, Volkswagen's actually done really, really well. And, um, you know, a lot of the other German manufacturers are, are really stepping up their game. And so we might see some, although it's, it's, it's caught on a lot in like the Silicon Valley, California kind of area, 
they're having troubles in Europe and we don't know how that's going to play out, but it doesn't seem like they're going to be able to have that kind of California takeover. It's not necessarily going to duplicate in other countries or even other continents. And so that's something to kind of temper expectations on whether that's margins or straight up revenue growth. I love the boots on the ground research. <laughs> I personally, I, I was an engineer working in the automotive sector for a while. I was working at Magna International. Uh, many Canadians know the name. I know it's it too. Lar- yeah, it's a large Are you familiar cap. with uh, Gentex Competi- is it, is competitors? It, that's another manufacturer. They, they do they do like uh, components into cars also. And I know Magna's like... Okay. I, I guess Magna must be the big fish and Gentex is like, they're our big brother kind of deal. Gotcha. Yeah, they're a they're a big player now. And the thing about auto manufacturing is margins are god awful. So I mean, the car business is you know not the super high margin software businesses that you see these crazy price of sales multiples strapped to. Um, but I don't want to take this whole segment for uh, for Tesla because let's get into two things that you've been digging into on the accounting side. Return on invested capital and free cash flow, I think of as, you know, maybe the most important metrics to track in stock investing. I mean, there's lots to look at, but those two are guaranteed check boxes for my research. And uh, you were mentioning some nuances with these name, with these two metrics, and um, I'm happy to, uh, to have you discuss those, and and uh, and we can chat. Yeah, let's let's talk about free cash flow, and I think this is pertinent because, as I, I you know, it's it's very obvious as these 10K and the annual reports come out for the fiscal year 2020, you saw huge disparities, and you know some industries had crazy demand where they can't they can't keep up with supply and supply is constrained. Other industries, you know, are are struggling because demand just dropped off a cliff, and so. A huge component of free cash flow is working capital. And so just to kind of break that down and make it simple, you know, working capital is I got to get some inventory. That's the simplest way I like to think about it. You know, I got to spend some cash to build some inventory. So if I'm a retailer, if I have a holiday season coming up, I might get rid of a bunch of my cash so I can fill my my shelves and my warehouse. That way, when we get all this demand, we can sell through. And so as as you have those changes in the working capital, they influence your free cash flow. Before we wrap things up, I wanted to take a moment and uh, thank Andrew for coming on the podcast and having that great discussion with us. Unfortunately, we're missing a few minutes of the uh, discussion that we had with Andrew because of technical difficulties, uh, so you did not catch the end of that discussion. However, I still think there was some really good information in the discussion that we were able to capture in the podcast today. If you'd like to learn more about Andrew, you can go to his website, einvestingforbeginners.com. Andrew is also the co-host of the Investing for Beginners podcast along with Dave Ahern, which you can listen to on a weekly basis. That wraps it up for the Canadian Investor podcast today. We hope that you enjoy the episode and we'll be back with a new episode next Monday. The Canadian Investor is not to be taken as investment advice. Braden or Simone may own securities mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment decisions.